0: I'd like to welcome uh, Lehman Pascal, who I get to know more and more through his podcast and a a couple of conversations uh, I've had with him, including the last one where I queried whether he was a guru or not. And I thought it was a kind of a funny joke, but he said, yes, in in fact, he is a guru. So I thought that was an excellent answer. Um, uh, So Lehman is is, uh, a guy on the internet And he's also a prolific writer and podcaster, and he's involved in Integral. He's involved in he used to be a yoga teacher, but he's 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 recovered from that. There's a couple of things I want to talk to you about or what I was thinking about talking to you about, because often we're throwing this word Tantra around and everybody's using this word Tantra a lot. And it seems to be referred to something vague, which is cool. But I don't know if anybody knows what it is or, you know, uh, it, it, and, and something vaguely also related to having a lot of sex and, and doing doing doing, let's say, left hand path activities. So anyway, I want to I want to I want to know what, what you what you think about about Tantra. And what is Tantra? And I, and I also want to know. Yeah, I just want to know. Um, I, I want to know all about your sex life. That's. <laughs> That's what, that's my, that's really what I want to know here. Okay, well, I'll
1: touch on Tantra, and then you can get more specific if you want to. (laughs) Uh, Tantra, I think of, you know, sort of etymologically, it's the extension of the Dharma, right? The extension of the weave, (laughs) so that the essence of what the Dharma is passes into every other dimension of manifest existence. Uh, So it's a way of bringing... um, spiritual depth and non-duality to every aspect of existence, particularly to the different functional energies that make up a human being. So it's like putting the Dharma into your into your sex and into your death and into your heart and your thoughts. There's, there's no area in which the Dharma is off limits through Tantra. But in practice, that frequently looks like the confrontation between opposites. Right, sometimes it's a reconciliation of opposites, but it's not really kind of reconcile it to the point where they're neutralized or balanced it's about coming up against the friction point between polarized energies. So the Dharma is being extended into domains of polarized energy through all the different functional qualities of existence. So one way you run up against that polarization is is like death and void and meaningless and all those sort of qualities you don't want to allow into yourself. Uh, that's a confrontation between you and whatever that thing is. Uh, another way you run up against it is with another person or between two genders or between humanity and nature. So all of those sort of relational, dynamic, polarized contexts that make up all of the world, those are taken as being utterly permeated by non-duality and providing the vocabulary for an expanded, extended version of what the Dharma can be.
0: mm mm-hmm. Maybe you can get into what you mean by non duality, because this is like another kind of spiritual buzzword these days, which annoys me. Uh, um, (laughs) Just like when people talk about Tadra, it annoys me. But but, but, but of course, fundamentally, that's what I'm interested in. But at the same time, it's become a buzzword, so it might be worthwhile to try to bring some nuance to, to what it actually means.
1: The first thing I usually try to do when thinking about non-duality is to separate it from like monism of various kinds, right? So we're not talking about everything is one. We're talking about the presence of a form of consciousness that's constellated around paradox. So there both is and is not oneness. That's a more non-dual statement than the assertion that there is oneness. Non-duality is different than saying unity because you maintain the duality in the statement. The the duality is still there, we say not two instead of one, because we're transcending and including, so to speak, the duality. We're uh, maintaining the difference, the opposition, and transcending it in the same moment. So that sense of being both inside and outside of all the possible categorizations of experience, not just mental categorizations, but experiential categorizations. So all the forms of experience, of feeling, of ecstatic states, but even of thinking and analyzing the world that uh, both simultaneously cancel and don't cancel fundamental oppositions. So one of the things I point to a lot is adjacency. Like proximity is an interesting condition. In proximity, you're not fundamentally separated, but you're not merged either. Proximity itself is a condition in which the distinction between separate Separated and not separated is itself broken down. So all the forms of consciousness, embodied, mystical, or even analytical, in which you experience the world as no longer obeying an absolute distinction between separated and non-separated, that's non-duality.
0: Yeah, and if we if we go into the sexual metaphor, um, it's like when it, in the in the you know in the tantric traditions you have the abhoom symbol where the, there's a dynamic interplay between the male and the female. Called sex, right? Um, um, uh, so that they are—they are not one. In other words, they're not a, a an undifferentiated blob, but they're—they're they're not two either, because because it's you know when you have sex that you you don't you lose the sense of difference between yourself and, and the other. You lose the boundaries of of the skin or.
1: Yeah, there's a a sort of naive way of thinking about that as a unification, which it really isn't, right? If I say that I want to be, you know, sexually one with my girlfriend, I don't actually want us to occupy the same space or not be able to distinguish our pancreases from each other. What I mean is I want to get a lot closer. I want to get close enough that a different function is created. An emergent function arises at some kind of proximal point by embodying that non-dual Reference point that's available to you in the betweens of things.
0: Yeah. So there's like a third element, a dynamic element that emerges between the one and the two, or between the two people. Yeah, you can see it. It's, it's, it's not like, because I, like I think the yin yin entanglement yang, is like that.
1: Like the right? yin, yin yang. entanglement, single. You have two bits of information, but are they two bits of information or are they one bit of information? Yeah. It's dubious. The fact that it's dubious means it's non dual. The duality is not canceled. Um, but it's not fundamentally obeyed either. It becomes an ambiguity between whether there's two or one.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking about the, the yin yang symbol is often it could be interpreted as a totalitarian symbol because it's complete and there's no gap. Uh, there's no dynamic gap. There's just there's just the two sides and they're 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 complete. Whereas our existence has this gap or this um we were talking to this musician the other day he was talking about how you always have to step into the gap or the the death or the emptiness or the or the void Um,
1: yeah i imagine the yin yang symbol is like a disc and on the other side of that disc is just gray and then you just spin that disc and you keep seeing both sides until it blurs Mm -hmm. Mm,
2: that's nice let me um let me actually throw something in here slightly provocatively Andrew actually so before we started you said something about um people are saying everything is tantra these days like psychoanalysis is tantra and so on and so forth now to me actually when I when I've heard people describing psychoanalysis as a form of tantra that kind of makes sense and especially squaring it with what layman has said so far if you think of kind of the foundation of a psychoanalytic method to get someone to to bring to consciousness a part of themselves that has, to the present, been othered, been denied, um, and creating a greater deal of comfort and acceptance of this fantasy or drive, whatever it is, through speech, um, but often not leading to a to a position where <laughs> this thing is made completely the basis of the personality because often this thing might just be a, a monstrous thing that can't be that like you if your thing is to be humiliated in public or to go and rugby tackle someone at, at a wedding then um, you can't do that all the time but, but being aware of it um, brings one kind of closer to I suppose the truth of being whatever it might be and and so at Andrew I guess I'm wondering why your kind of protest against seeing psychoanalysis as a form of Tantra? I I agree with all that. I have nothing against that.
0: I would say that Tantra is the practice of skillful means. So in traditional Tantra, there's 83,000 different Tantras, (laughs) different kinds of practices. And some of them, you know, deal with the psyche and some of them don't. Um, Some of them are uh, utterly irrelevant to psychoanalysis. And some of them, I think psychoanalysis is a skillful means. So, absolutely, psychoanalysis, I just wouldn't define Tantra as that. I would say that's a potential upaya or a potential skillful means within Tantra. So, 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 so would be psychedelics and and so would be sexuality. But I wouldn't reduce it to any of those things. So, so, so my protest is when it gets reduced or defined uh, as being psychoanalysis, because I think psychoanalysis has a certain limit. And I think tantra goes, this may sound, I think tantra goes way beyond that psychoanalytical li- limit of, of like talk therapy. I don't know. What do you think, uh, Layman?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's misleading to say everything is tantra. It's more accurate to say anything could be a tantra. Uh, and that still leaves open the question of what a Tantra essentially is, which I definitely uh, is reflected in some of the ways that some people go through psychoanalysis, but certainly isn't limited to that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think yeah. that kind of points at what I was getting at. Yeah, it does seem like a, a methodology, a process method. Yeah,
0: I think there's um, I mean, I, I think that in within Tantra, if you do it, if you do it intensely uh, and with a lot of intensity, then there could be a psychoanalytic, not analytic process that kind of occurs naturally without having to do the couch thing or the, I mean, uh, uh that's what I'm told anyway, but I, but, I, but I probably need a lot of psychoanalysis myself, so I'm not going to stand here on a pedestal and, <laughs> and say that it's, it's like I, that I'm not going to put down psychoanalysis for sure, because I, I learn immense amounts from, from psychoanalysis. Yeah.
1: No, I think the beauty of the tantric conception is that all of the different kinds of qualities of engagement in the world can potentially be sacred engagements. It doesn't mean that they are, you have to do something to sacralize it, but it doesn't put anything out of bounds, right? Everything can be transformed into the Dharma rather than having a, a sort of safe beginner's version of the Dharma that's clean and is walled around by certain intensities that we don't experience so that we can maintain our spiritual life. Tantra goes past those intensity limits and opens itself to a much greater spectrum of possible forms of the sacred. Yes. As does shamanism. I like think shamanism yeah. is very often tantric in terms of the ability of the shaman to improvisationally make sacred all kinds of things about nature, all kinds of things about the tribe to consecrate what they're doing to the point that it becomes tantra-like. I think that's a good discussion,
0: actually, to talk about what is the difference between shamanism and, and tantra, because I think there's a lot of similarities. I think I think that shamanism is fundamentally proto-tantra or 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 really is the you know the, the tantric spirit is really shamanistic on, on some on some profound level it seems to me that way
1: no oh, i would agree with that i think proto tantra is a great way to think about it um it's also proto yoga it's also proto sutra right tantra uh, shamanism stands at the root of all these things and they're yeah. sort of um tangled together in a really deep natural wild kind of way in shamanism And as we get more civilized, we tend to unpack that into different domains of spirituality. And I think one of the things Tantra does is bring back into Dharmic spirituality some of the things from shamanism that we're getting left out of the narrower, more civilized version, Mm -hmm. as does psychoanalysis to some degree, as does art, as does surrealism, as do dreams, as does sex, um, as does death. Yeah, I was thinking
0: about maybe uh what the culture needs in terms of an artistic revolution and I, I sort of think that has to be tantric on some level and what that means to me is bringing the low to the high like going you know like the way jesus used to hang out with the whores and and the and the and, and, and the money lenders and and uh, there's a reality to tantra like it's not it's not a flaky new age thing there's a concreteness to it people you know if you if you study the the indian tantric tantric masters um which is is very worldly or something or a very you know as opposed to otherworldly as opposed to the kind of indian spirituality which is very otherworldly so 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 um there's the intensity and i think there's the need for i, I think that i think that, and, and there's that 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 kind of ability to go down with the people the lowest of the low or the low I don't does that does that ring true to you uh, layman it's just something I was thinking about
1: today in yeah, terms I of... think I mean it's not um, it's not going to the lowest of the low at the expense of going into more refined qualities no it's about playing those opposites together as they are in the manifest reality and in ourselves. I and mean, there it's uh it works with polarization. It's an ascending and descending couple simultaneously in tantric practice.
0: Yes, but I think my point was that a lot of the abstraction philosophy and philosophy and stuff we're hearing in, in the in the web has this has this floaty abstract quality. Um, um and, and when I think something is real, it has a punch to it or something which is 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 because. Because like Jesus used to hang out with the, you know, the horrors and he, he wasn't afraid to go in, into those spaces. He didn't want to stay in this um, intellectual abstract Game B space, or <laughs> if I can be a little critical of Game B
1: yeah well, i think to some degree the medium right as long as we're using uh very abstract digital media yeah uh, there's always going to be a problem of dissociating from bodily but in order to ground it in order to do real spiritual work you have to come back to not only the body but to the entire range of affects that socialized versions of spirituality usually marginalize. right so embodiment sexuality mortality anxiety <laughs> uh, our predatory nature, our, our, the compost of the world is necessary
2: in order to grow any of the flowers. Yeah. There's a nice line in a, uh, in a talk by, by Deleuze that, uh, that I was reminded of by what you said, Andrew, um, where he says something like, the job of art is to um, dissolve the distinction between the sacred and the profane. And I find it quite interesting, like, when I first hear it, I kind of think of often encountering people who say, oh, we're so profane, we've lost the way, but we need art that's going to bring us back to God and bring us back to the sacred and so forth. But it's also fun to do the, like, little Zizekian inversion and say, like, what if it is it that we've already become so intensely, horribly sacred? And <laughs> what they we desperately need is a is it Henry Miller to slap us down back into that profane? Because ultimately, well, I guess to go back to our non-dual thing, there is a, um, there, there's a proximity between the two. They're not so abstractly disconnected.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that you could get stuck in either of those. You can get stuck in the sacred or the profane, in the ascending or the descending. Right, so Tantra's job is to take the contexts and the qualities of the world that it encounters and sort of weave them together with their opposites in order to sacralize the experience in some way that's outside of the limitations imposed by the distinction between those thematic zones. Right, as long as it seems to us that there is a fundamental distinction between the sacred and profane, or that we're devoted to one rather than the other, then we're not quite tantric in the sense of the uh, generative reciprocal entanglement form of tantra. It has to bring those together and kind of make an engine out of it and make them into the positive and negative poles of some kind of electrical phenomenon, turn ourselves on with that reciprocity.
0: Yeah, so, but you mentioned non-duality and that's almost duality, right? There has to be an intense duality as well. Sure, and
1: that's why that's why you say non-duality as opposed to unity, because it maintains the duality, right? Sometimes I'll say <laughs> duality is the real non-duality because it undermines the duality between non-duality and duality, or something like that, right? You can keep going further down any of these permutation paths, but fundamentally, as long as you keep seeing non-duality as the opposite of duality, then it's not quite non-duality yet. Right, right. Yeah.
0: So there's an ascending and a descending, you know, force within us. Let's say there's the, the kind of force that wants to, you know, go up upwards and then there's this other force that wants to go, go downwards and um I was reading about that the, the, the apparently the you know in the Christian mysticism the archangel is pulls you upwards whereas the angels bring you downwards. Um I thought that was an interesting way of of thinking about it. Uh, because it's not like we want to have just just barren dry realism nihilism uh, we want to have some ontological depth. and um anyway that's my ramble about this. that's my ramble about that but but the low i think we need to go i, I think the low is important um i think they'll get the 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 low going i think if I look at the artists that I, that I love, they have a very sublime vision and yet they, they want to go into the low. They want to go into the, you know, the, the, the graveyard experience, death experience. their undoing. Yeah, and
1: to really experience it. Um, I mean, one of the things when you start talking about uh, descent and art and the, you know, the shit of the world and, you know, bring that back in, there's often a tendency to think that we can, Do that physically and mentally, rather than suffering from it emotionally, but one of the big things that controls the flow of the descending current of energy is whether your heart can break right whether you can grieve whether you can be disappointed. uh, Whether you can allow yourself to be softened by lack and frustration and all the strange things of the world. So, I think we need to remember that Tantra does involve uh, a softening of the heart to emotions that make us feel like we're falling down or collapsing or losing or trapped in ambiguity, things like that. Mm. We had a great conversation with John Verbeke around grieving the death of God, right? And it's hinted at in Nietzsche when Nietzsche confronts the atheists and accuses them of not understanding what they've done, of not really being atheists yet. Right, mm. mean, What is it that they would have to go through to understand the so-called death of God? As some kind of emotional reckoning of, you know, of really what would it be like in your heart to experience a world that's bereft of the automatic promise of ascension? And you would be, you know, what does it feel like to be in a disappointed world? That's an important part of descending. It's not just, uh, you know, the fun playing around with art and muck.
2: It's also a broken heart. And, and it's interesting that because it gets to, like, how do we think about our culture today? Like, I've been kind of thinking about it to go back to that kind of sacred and profane. I often think that we're actually in an intensely sacred culture that pretends it isn't. and that's, That explains the kind of strict moralism and also the kind of almost sometimes fundamentalist approach to progressivism. It's like we are ascending. We are absolutely ascending. We haven't done that work of grieving the death of God uh, at all. Um, But then I suppose there is the or are the unavoidable currents of despair and mental breakdown kind of sweeping through people. And yet we still remain very much, as far as I can see, attached to our notions of the sacred, perhaps defined as a sacred humanism sacred progressivism, but still very much as inner sacredness. And that's where, so to kind of think about what would, uh, what would an art that is a tantra for this moment entail, I think it really, to me, it does involve that, that kind of <laughs> the emotional grieving of the death of God, but knowing that consciously that that is exactly what it is.
1: Yeah. I think an art that does that is an art that can take you all the way down Without trapping you there and without treating that descent as a reaction against the ascending current. Uh, and if it does it that way, then it allows you to spontaneously, organically reascend whenever is appropriate. You know, those social phenomena you described that dominate the world are similar to some of the socialized spiritual and religious patterns throughout history that I normally think of as premature ascending right if you this is a, one of the classic yogic ways of thinking about this is an energy current comes down through your system embodies your life embodies the world and then turns around and fluxes back up into spontaneous ascended conditions but if you block that current and try to hastily ascend try to hastily pursue the good and the sacred and control and escape from the body and all these sorts of things that we see manifested in our socio-political environment then you haven't actually allowed it to complete its journey you haven't allowed the circuit to be complete so i think we are um, menaced on all sides by premature ascenders who've you know hastily reacted against the experience of descent and tried to ascend before its time Uh, but an art should be able to help us go all the way down and not trap us there, but allow us to go back up whenever it's appropriate for us to do so as a completion of that downward movement.
0: That's very interesting. And and, I mean, that's kind of the sicknesses of the the particular religious traditions at the moment, maybe is that they haven't fully realized themselves. Like maybe we haven't had Christianity and Buddhism and Islam yet, you know, (laughs) because they, they, they've, they prematurely ascended to God or tried to, and uh, haven't come down to the earth yet, which is, you know, oh, it's a radical statement, but this, it's, it's, I think that's very interesting.
2: Having just spent the weekend hanging out with Cadell and Thomas Hamelrich and some others, I mean, I think one of the things we kind of really talk about with Christianity is, yes, there hasn't been Christianity yet. Kind of building off of, well, Girard and Zizek's both kind of different ways of formulating it, but essentially a kind of Christian atheism. So Zizek kind of saying like the ultimate truth of the death of God is that there is no longer a death in the sky. You've got to learn to be with each other in the presence of each other. And only then is the Holy Spirit there. Only if then
1: Christianity could reabsorb, say, Nietzsche and treat him as a Christian saint. Uh, then you would start mm-hmm. to have a Christianity that's historically worthwhile. Right. And I think
2: that is, in some senses, a project that some of our crew are working on.
0: And that's that's the movement from sutra to tantra in a way. Sutra tends to whitewash things, you know. It, and and you know, and I, I you know I'm a tantric Buddhist, but I, I went to the the, the Gimli Museum and, and you can see that the Buddhas are, you know, there were there were there there was the, the wrathful, the powerful, the sexual Buddhas of tantra, which were everywhere at one point in the world, and then sort of sutric. Mahayana Buddhism came and swept all that away and so you would only have pure images of Yin Im and, and pure images of the Buddha and pure, so there's this kind of purity, but the purity is a dark purity because it doesn't acknowledge uh, the edgier sides of, 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 of reality, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't get the, sh- it doesn't, it can't eat the shadow
1: It's hard to know what's socially pragmatic in a move like that, mm-hmm. right? There's an yeah. exoteric and esoteric aspect to it where we may want uh, tantra for some, but you may want sutra for those who aren't ready. So in, in the Mahayana movement, which does have uh, some dark and ragged extensions, uh, one of the things I always wonder is how much of it is PR, for example, right? When you're going to really put compassion and loving kindness at the forefront of Dharma, Uh, Yes, that's a refining, self-transforming move for individuals, but it's also a great PR move, right? We're going to promote to the rest of the world a lot of nice things that they can get behind, and there's no need for them to attack our temples. Meanwhile, we can do what we want in our temples. So one way to look at it as a kind of division between the esoteric and the exoteric. But on the other hand, when we look at the world now, we have to ask ourselves whether we want everybody to be doing Tantra. Or whether we only want some prepared people to be doing tantra. And I think you could make arguments either way.
0: I would say that you don't want everybody to do tantra, that it's a self-secret thing. It's like if you get it, great, you can do it, it's available. But but if you but if you don't really get it, then then you'd be in a dangerous position if you would you're especially in danger if you try to imitate it, I would say.
1: I think okay. there's a lot of truth to that, but I think you can also set up social conditions that predispose people to slowly acquire the skills and temperament that would yes. allow that to flourish.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That would be a proper religious structure which had the whole path built into it. Yeah.
2: But of course, then there's also the difficulty of dealing with um, with people, you might say, of a more sutric orientation who, who look at the tantric and go no evil
0: <laughs> which is good which fine. is fine you know it's fine in a way in a it, way it's, it, yeah. it's it's fine as long as you don't get you know but, but i suppose
2: so. what i'm wondering towards because layman is suggesting like building social structures that um that allow for well i don't i don't think you said everybody to do it but at least facilitate the type of people who can see it and handle it but I wonder given that we seem to have had pitfalls whether it's east and west the uh, kind of Hinayanas and Mahayanas disavowing the Vajrayanas or if it's the uh, the Christians kind of in the name of forgiveness condemning thousands millions of people to death um, somehow there's always a way to create heretics and I wonder I mean I'm just like is that a a failure for those skillful initiates to skillfully communicate the the deep insights of their initiation? Or is this just something we're going to have to deal with? I think the productive
1: mechanisms of the natural world of which we are a part constantly throw up situations where there's going to be a dialectical rebellion against those circumstances so there's always going to be ways for heretics to be produced and then the question becomes how do we reconsolidate the heresy back into the form and that's part of a tantric social wisdom so we need to set up conditions where the world culture is as helpful to tantra as possible doesn't foist it on everyone all the time has mechanisms for selecting and inviting people in has mechanisms for enfolding divergences back into the core, but also has mechanisms for appropriately concealing or defending itself when it needs to
0: Yeah, yeah I know I mean Tibetan culture was largely monastic um, and so so but so there was a sort of sutric tantra. Um, In other words, the images were there, the philosophy was there, and that's what you would would spend most of your life sort of playing with that and trying to understand that. And then then a few weird guys would go off and do actual Tantra.
1: We also may be in a unique world historical circumstance now where um, some of the things we associate with Tantra and some of the things we associate with Shamanism, for example, uh, are required of a much greater range of people in order to position the species well to survive uh, very strange circumstances, crises, and destabilizations that are on their way, right? We could say, well, it's absolutely fine to have a very small uh, core of initiates and a huge number of people involved in sutric mm-hmm. practice and then beyond them, a range of, you know, <laughs> idolaters and blasphemers and something like that. But we might need 10 or 100 times as many Uh, tantric practitioners as we've had in the past in order to produce a species capable of handling the strangeness of the next say 50 years
0: yeah and the tricky thing with that is that you can't really rush the process so Mm -hmm. the process is probably rushing us into that
1: maybe yeah Yeah, there are ways to help there are ways to facilitate there are ways to move against things that obstruct the process but also you can't rush it you can't be hasty you have to go Uh, You have to go slow enough to go as fast as you can.
0: Yeah,
1: you have to go step step by step. Help facilitate it.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, psychoanalysis was a great example to bring up earlier, right? In a more therapeutically oriented culture, people have more opportunities to explore the diversity of the layers of their own psyche and to process through these things. Uh, One of the things I think we've seen historically is that When people don't think about or explore even verbally move through unpleasant, ambiguous or unknown aspects of themselves, then they don't come across the structures and the skills that would enable them to do something like tantra. I think you need a fairly sex positive environment, you need people with fairly healthy bodies, which has a lot of security and dietary and exercise requirements you need a circumstance in which there isn't a whole bunch of top-down pressure but at the same time there isn't a complete lack of structure and form and discipline uh, i think we in some ways the the chaotic environment of what we might call the Kali yuga is potentially an extremely fertile breeding ground for a lot of tantra but we would expect that tantra to be somewhat ragged somewhat feral only occasionally meeting the sophisticated standards given to us by the past Mm-hmm. Fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, from a tantric point of view, I guess this Kali Yuga. When Kali Yuga means, right, the apocalypse. It's like the last cycle or the end time, or right, the death of of, 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 a, of a paradigm of a culture. Um. And, and so I think that it, 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 that that's that's normally thought of as the best time to practice tantra because then you can see. You can have it. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get to the next golden age or whatever, but you can you can see glimmers of it. You can. Uh-huh.
1: And uh, to Owen's point earlier, art is a huge factor in that, right? If you have artistic productions that remind you of the full spectrum multiplicity of human experience in which there are protagonists and anti-heroes and people who are exploring different layers and dimensions of human experience who are showing all the parts of the self and all the different kinds of interactions you can have. It really opens up the space in which consciousness could move to start to reproduce Tantra. Mm -hmm. Like a culture in which you can watch a TV show where people make you know, with a refer to sodomy, for example, uh, is different than a culture where you can't make that reference, right? Because people grow up going, oh, that's a thing I could think about. And some of the people who think about that thing will think about it in a way that moves their consciousness and feeling toward it and gives them the intuition that they might be able to do something with the range of energies that are otherwise sort of compacted in resistance to that not to privilege sodomy or anything, but it's an example of a type of thing that's often put out of bounds by conventional culture. Yeah. And there's a whole set of sensations involved in thinking about it that need to be reconsolidated into our being in order to make us capable of some kinds of higher tantric experiences.
2: Well, it's it's funny that you bring up that example, because um, one of the things that the TNT, New Tantra Organization, which are pretty big in Europe, um Emphasize is especially for men what they're calling anal deomerate. And, and I, I've done a couple of podcasts with those guys, and it's been fascinating to see that a number of listeners have said to me, I've actually started doing those practices after <laughs> listening to that podcast. Um, but then there's also been a piece of fascinating data that they themselves and the team noticed that they said, over about 10 years of doing the work, so starting, I think, in the kind of early 2010s up to the present, they said, the men who were coming were increasingly open to the practice. So something even in 10 years has made people or or men, at least apparently less tense around the arse to put it brutally on (laughs) out there, which is kind of interesting to think about, like, what does that mean on an energetic level? Like, is it something to do with being more open to, to surrendering and letting things go?
1: It could be. I mean, I think it can be a sign of some healthy and some unhealthy trends in the culture. Uh, but even if it's simultaneously a sign of certain problematic and certain liberating trends, it at least occurs in a messy space where the liberating possibilities are not being shut down.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, in fact, the idea of heresy is sort of interesting because all of that is, well, or, 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 um, Breaking the the taboos, uh, uh, intentionally breaking the taboos uh, of the culture, uh, in order to 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 actually re- consciously, in order to liberate energy, is is a is a dangerous business. Uh, it's always existed in very hidden places, but 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 uh, and it is a dangerous business. But it is interesting, yeah. And I think, yeah, I guess having a tight ass would be. would be like just keeping everything in not being able to let and not being able to let the the, the filth and the garbage of of your body just 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 go completely right holding all that tension and 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 uptightness inside of you so so i guess de-armoring that that area
1: i mean it's a great symbolic area to think about because it's the opposite terminal of the ascending capacities exactly yeah
0: that's right and it has this you have
1: to have a balance right because you don't want to have your ass fixated and unable to open but you don't want to have it totally loose and just shitting all the time either right it's a oscillating capacity to move between tension and relaxation and then it's as true at every level or every chakra function as it is in the anus you have to be able to do it with your heart and with your communication, and with your vision, with your transcendence, and with your gut, and all those things as well. Of course, yeah, yeah, all the different
0: levels, right? Which are, are you know, and are symbolically mapped on the body. Um, but they also they they have a they have a micro, microcosmic meaning to them, and then they have a larger meaning as well, right? You
1: know, like well, we so, certainly see those those spectrums of function sort of fractally replicated at a lot of different scales and in a lot of different contexts, right? It's probably a little bit more complicated than that. Our ancestors had a tendency to simplify things Mm. for human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we certainly, we see something like those scales and gradients of function in all of the places that we look at the cosmos. Mm, Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that, that kind of makes me think about how we, how we work, weave in our scientific knowledge, with our religious knowledge, you know, with whatever we've learned from science, uh, with, with you know, sort of a vulgar notion of chakras or something like that. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, science is very um, friendly, I would say. It ought to be very friendly with things like shamanism and Tantra, right? When we're yeah. talking about shamanism, we're talking about a spirituality that embraces and works from the natural world. And so the natural sciences are very complementary to that. When we're talking about the way Tantra also embraces all of the different qualities and dimensions of existence, then that's something that we are expecting our science to be able to do. And when our science is really flourishing, it is coming up against those hard polarized places. It is having a relationship with mystery. It is uh, entering consciousness into all kinds of areas that the society might put out of bounds. And it's giving us this wonderful cathedral of knowledge around how the entire system functions. And if we can fold that into our spiritual practice, or if we can make the part of ourselves that does scientific knowledge, have better relationships with the other parts of ourselves, our feelings and our subconscious and our body and things like that, then we can have a very rich up to date shamanic tantric kind of spirituality, we don't want to be caught in, even though we want all the benefits. Of classical and archaic forms of tantra, we want it to be scientifically updated, as it was in all the great periods of tantric flourishing in the past. Yeah. On
0: the other hand, just just a sort of question about that, because I think that, for example, I was reading. You know, I've been reading. I read a lot of texts about magic and alchemy, and I I think you do too, and and have some some knowledge of that. And that's not science, right? Um, um, Some of it is, is is proto science. Uh, but I think it's bad science. But it's it's good. It's good. Let's say, f- um, I think Verveki had a nice term for that. Actually, he was. He said it's good folk understanding, or it's it's good. You know, maybe mythopoetic understanding, or we need to. That's powerful as well, right? Um, I think, like the sure. symbolism. The sim- symbolism is a language. I think in the scientific world that people like have kind of people are sort of symbolically illiterate um, in a lot of ways. And we could go back and sort of look at those symbols and and see them in in different ways.
1: Most of human knowledge has been heuristic rather than accurate, Mm -hmm. right? We've come up with things to help us get things done. And so a lot of our intuitive functions and a lot of the structures that would enable us to function well are not technically accurate forms of thinking. So now that we have a lot more technically accurate forms of knowledge, we still have to do something with that that makes it amenable to the multidimensional thriving of human beings. So that's a little bit like moving back into that heuristic territory. We don't want to do that at the expense of new scientific accuracy. We want to somehow be able to merge our increasing new and often statistical knowledge with our instincts, which is what the successes of our ancestors show us. Right? They show us a way of merging objective knowledge with subjective reality in order to get some kind of deeper, more meaningful, more competent experience. Now, we have a lot more external knowledge than we used to. But we still have to merge that with our intuition and our instincts in order to make it viable for us as beings.
0: Yeah. And we can look at the difference between, for example, how we view the universe today in a scientific way. And let's say the, the pre-Copernicus universe, which is actually true in, in, in an ontological sense, you know, that, that that we're in the center and the horizon is... is uh, you know, uh, that, that we're seeing a flat world, and, and these, these, are, these, these are, these as you say, we, we, maybe we've, we've, we're, we're too split between, let's say, real, the, between scientific objectivity and ontological
1: experience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And we need to bring those systems back together, which is, a, again, a very Gurdjieffian way of thinking about this. Right. You've got these different systems, you've got these different selves, you've got something like an essence and something like a personality, right? You have a kind of intuitive, hereditary, heuristic mode of being that predominated when you were very young. And then you have a waking state, socialized consciousness that's available to all the knowledge of the current epoch. And somehow those have to get together if you're going to have a real inner world of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I kind of see. On one hand, I kind of see this autistic reality, which is completely literal, literalist, objective, you know. Um, and then, and then there's this, then there's this, hyster- other side of reality, which would be like on a pathog- pathological sense, just, just insane, just hysterical. Um, uh, those would be the, the. That's the world that's split between hysteria and and uh, maybe autism or neurosis or. Um, It's uh, fundamentally
1: unsatisfying to live in the objectively real world, but the irrational world can't be relied upon. It's too primitive. So what we need to do is have them cross-pollinate each other so that our irrational side gets smarter, gets smarter to the degree that it can competently exist in the objective world, but bringing with it all of the faculties of meaning-making and dimensional experience that we rely upon to have a life that's worth existing in
0: yeah beautiful and that's that's really the artist again in a way because he's able like like james joyce he was able to be schizophrenic without being schizophrenic like he was able to experience all the different realms of language and and music and 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 madness with but, but he could still function in the world somehow now, somehow i think that that's I think there's, another there's something matter. to do with yeah, the art, the, the, the madness, and the, between the, the madness of the uh, allowing yourself to go mad in that sense, but remaining sane is is, is walking that tightrope. Maybe that Nietzsche words would
1: speak about. Well, Nietzsche touches on the will a lot, right? And I think there's a factor of intentionality that's necessary that we see in a good artist, right? If a good artist thinks of a sculpture they could make. There's no necessity for them to do that, right? It's, a, it's like a whim. It's a completely subtle prompt. And they're going to then make themselves follow that out until it becomes a reality, right? Mm-hmm. That's an intentionality building process. And by building up intentionality, it's like you create a capacity in a container that can start to hold that madness and bring it into the world in a safer way that doesn't destroy you, but gives you life. And I think that's one of the other things that connects Tantra with art is the use of intentionality. And intentionality can be used to follow a a form, a ritual, a discipline that's handed to us by our elders or our ancestors. It can also be used to improvise new forms that's where it becomes a little bit more shamanic and say well you know what i'm going to do is (laughs) i'm going to get my girlfriend and my psilocybin and my masks and we're going to drive up we're going to climb that mountain we're going to do you know you've got to, that's a big undertaking you're going to reshape some experience of reality based on an unnecessary impulse that you had that's what artists do and i think it builds up the capacity that's necessary for us to ground the coming together of the rational and irrational dimensions
0: we often talk about the creativity of the artist but there's also the destructive quality of the artist I remember reading about Cezanne and Cezanne was like he was a class he was trained in the classical tradition and at one point he realized that he was just copying uh stuff right and that he was not creating anything new so he did this for years and years and years and then he just destroyed his entire oeuvre he just burnt it up in a, in a big barn and, and at that moment he created this sort of new kind of art which was based you know which threw away perspective and and brought in luminosity and you know and you can see the mountain from all these different you know angles and directions he created an entire new language which looks kind of like a postcard to us now but at that point because the more that you destroy right the the more that you're able to destroy of the rigid formality the more free you are and the more you can actually create
1: yeah and destruction has um It has an aggressive aspect to it of like shattering things and opening space up, but it also has a um, can be a smoother deconstructive process as well right wherever you find a plurality in something that you used to think was a homogenous unity. You've kind of destroyed that thing you've unpacked that category. Right? So when you go, I'm, I'm just myself, well, are you? You're a conscious and an unconscious and a thinking and a feeling and a doing. You've got this interactive set of moving components now instead of a single fixed unity. And those components afford themselves new possibilities of creativity because they've been separated out. Like a lot of spiritual life. And even when you come to Buddhist meditations, a lot of their insight practice is breaking things apart it's a conglomerate it's got components you thought it was one thing but actually it's a bunch of things and it's not vanished it doesn't lose significance in reality completely by being unpacked into its parts but you give yourself this additional capacity to see the space between them to afford that adjacency and to afford new kinds of combinations and hybridizations and synchronizations which weren't possible when you imagined it was just one fixed habitual object
0: Beautiful. Oh, and do you have any more questions? I've been kind of hogging the questions here. Um, And then maybe perhaps we can go to Q&A soon. Hey,
2: no, I mean, I've not got a burning question on the tip of my tongue. I mean, I'm kind of actually tempted to say, does anyone else in the room want to jump in with a question? Okay,
0: so let's, let's do that then. Let's, let's, uh, let's open things up. I'll, I'll I'll turn off the, the spotlight and we'll just have an open room here. How do I get rid of myself here as a spotlight? <laughs> Excuse me, gallery. Is everybody still seeing me? Okay, wait, wait. There we go. Remove spotlight. Good. Okay, so yeah, so anyway, this is our, our men's group. Uh-huh. And we were part of the Manifesto Network and we've, we've become independent. We're in this sort of liminal space where what we're going to do is we're going to. Um, we're going to to have a, a closed men's group here, and then we're also going to have open events at Parallax. So, so these are this is our. I'm just introducing you, Layman, to our yeah. to our team to our to our little men's group here, um, and I've uh, asked anybody who has some questions for for Layman to to jump in.
3: Okay. Uh, uh, this was a really really interesting discussion. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, the first uh, is that uh, uh, if if you would define what is the opposite or the antonym to Tantra what, what you what would you like to define that? And the second question I have I have um, I think you're brilliant. Have you written some books that you can um, mention if you have? I've, uh, <laughs> I wrote some
1: books years ago under different names, but uh, now I mostly do this kind of thing. I try to focus on video and focus on fragments and writing for particular projects and contributions. Um, so I'd like to not point to any books, but I'd like to say that uh, I'm available to um, have personal interactions where I could point people in the direction of particular ideas that might be interesting. The opposite of Tantra is a great question. Uh, I think there's two different ways to think about that. Obviously, Sutra is a classic opposite of Tantra. Right. And so we would say uh, a form of spirituality, which is socially oriented and obeys a distinction between the spiritual and the non-spiritual and confines itself to a limited space that is railed about with a lot of intensities that the practitioners are asked to not experience. So that's one way to think about it. But I would tend to think about it more like um, the mundane. Um, You know, Ken Wilber uses this phrase flatland to describe a world that's denuded of the vertical dimension of meaning. That's what I think mostly the opposite of Tantra would be. It's a world in which the practical production of the sacredness that doesn't obey the difference between the positive and the negative, where that's not being produced, you have the opposite of Tantra. Tantra seems to be the fundamental mechanism for transforming the world into the sacred. And so where you find a world denuded of the sacred, or where the sacred is broken away from the world or replaced with a pseudo-sacred, that would be the opposite of tantra.
3: Thank you. It's a great
0: answer. (laughs) my My first thought was totalitarianism
3: is the opposite of tantra on some level. It's, it's, it's like you're taking away the kind of dimensions that you can't see, you're living in a flat line, that land, you don't see the dimensions.
1: No, well, I think Andrew's point is a good one, because when we do that socially, we tend to, uh, we're taking away those dimensions, and we're narrowing it down and narrowing it down until we have something like a totalitarian system where everyone's being confined to one little meaningless echelon of reality.
0: Yeah, I, I would I say that sutra is a basis for tantra, so it's not the opposite of tantra. Like you need a base, all right? Yeah. you need to to you need a foundation, ethical foundation, uh, you know, um, spiritual foundation, and then you can blossom into tantra. But 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 it's not. I wouldn't say it's the opposite. For me, tantra is what's most alive. So what what the opposite would be is the, what's not
3: alive. <laughs> you know. I have one more question, but but uh, let let cool. other people go for before me if 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 they have questions. We've got lots will... of
0: time. Just jump in, Haken.
3: Uh, okay. Yeah. The, the 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 next question is that are we are limited to our thinking of tantra because of our? Uh, I'm I'm raised as a Christian and I'm not an a believer, but I have it in my language. And uh, when I'm reading translation, we're often talking about. Uh, uh gods and, and and such when we're trying to understand the the, the scripture from from hinduism and so on and and uh the question here is my assumption is that that are limiting our way of seeing this is the, do you have any reflection on that
1: when i connect tantra to shamanism one of the things i'm meaning to say is that it's rooted in our um Existential being in it, right? In our embodiment, in our experience of the world and of relationships and nature, that there's a very primitive way in which we start to access these things. So if our particular um, social mindset, right, whether we think of that as secular or as a particular religion, if that's keeping us from exploring uh, what's natural and multidimensional to our body and to our mind and to our relationships and to our environment, then it's going to inhibit that. But it's not just that there's one system like Christianity that's going to get in the way of understanding this miraculous Eastern technique of Tantra, right? There's all kinds of Eastern mindsets that are going to get in the way as well. In fact, you could have somebody who's an indoctrinated Tantric Buddhist or Tantric Hindu, and that indoctrination is getting in the way of their understanding of Tantra as well. So I think every human being and every culture is capable of having their own Tantra, but they do have to get outside of what their, their sense of their inherited social assumptions and especially the categories they think they've inherited.
2: Great. I would even like riff that I think there's plenty of potential for Tantra within Christianity. I mean, the symbol of God being brutally tortured by a mob being the core of the religion is um, it's not a rosy, happy idea. It's not transcendent love and bliss at all.
1: I think if you just imagine that guy crucified on that cross, but also imagine that he has all of his chakras activated, then you have a kind of way into thinking about Christian Tantra. But on the other hand, Christianity is very diverse. You can go back in time and find all kinds of strange Christian sects who would be doing something very similar to what we normally think of as Tantra.
0: i mean jesus was was very much a tantric master i think that's i've always saw him as that and i've saw and i I think that what happens when a tantric master comes then what happens is the community corrupts his message and that the history of christianity is is a corruption of christ (laughs) on some level um, you know you know even illich had, had an idea about that too that the corruption of the best is the worst
1: The dynamics of society and of the social surface always try to reconsolidate and take it back over, right? Just like if you invent a new technology, you invent a distributed internet, and that's going to liberate everybody. Well, it doesn't take very long before the economic predators want to consolidate that into platforms (laughs) and take your freedom away from you. And that works at every level, spiritually, religiously. Society is always naturally tending to do that unless we anticipate that and try to guard against it. This is a thing that comes up in Gurdjieff's writings a lot, right? The idea that of Beelzebub visiting the world through these different time periods and seeing these different avatars trying to bring illumination and watching their followers lose the message within a generation or two each time. So that we, anybody who's trying to bring spirituality, yes, you can work with people who are ready for the message, but when you're working with everyone else, you have to anticipate that it's going to go wrong and be co-opted and try to institute some kind of measures to prevent that from happening as much as it might ordinarily happen. Which of Gurdjieff's writings is that? That's uh, in Beelzebub's Tales, which is a huge like sci-fi allegory about uh, the devil living on Mars and coming down <laughs> to Earth at specific moments in history and giving his account of that. It's a notoriously difficult book to read, but it's worth it. Yeah, you're supposed to read it three times, and
0: it, and it has this... Uh, it's it's constructed in a way to fuck up your mind like to break down your patterns of automatic thinking so it's not only the the the, the, the you know the, right, the the story is very strange but but it also has an effect on you when you read it psychoactive uh, effect
2: yeah definitely amazing well uh, that's some that's some stuff for the reading list next year i think um let's have another question from someone
1: Mine's, uh, it's not quite a question
4: but maybe comment on on uh, when we were talking about the opposite of Tantra and it, for me it was I don't know what you can you know criticize this uh, but it it felt like maybe the opposite of Tantra is like that heartbreak we were discussing before without a sutra to catch it um, because I think what's what's top of mind right now is these the horrible shootings that have just occurred in the United States. And that feels like, um, you know, if not knowing much about the shooter, a little bit about the previous one, it sounds like there was, there was that heartbreak without anything to catch it. And so that instead of being able to transform that energy into, uh, you know, this creative Tantra, it just becomes destructive
1: yeah for me that touches in with um two things one is you could say that tantra is tantra plus sutra (laughs) and tantra and sutra separated is is the opposite of tantra but another part of it is the descending and ascending and the notion of what i call premature ascending so if if there's something coming down metaphorically And the heart is starting to break, but if it doesn't break all the way, it actually refuses that fall, it refuses to be as unhappy and disappointed as it is, and instead starts to try to go back up and force something. And that very often looks like horror and tragedy, because the natural circuitry hasn't been followed. We know what it's like for someone to go through grieving, there's a beauty and a grace to the way they come out of that. But if they stop and won't go through those stages and try to go back the other way, then you've got a real rupture and that can be really dangerous.
2: What are you thinking, David? Uh, no, I was just thinking, what? How do you? How do you recognize that state of premature? Yeah. Prematurely ascending while you're in it.
1: I think you always try to check to see if there's further down that you could go. One of the indicators is usually some sense of contraction or tension, if you're sensitive to yourself somatically, then you're probably able to feel where you're pushing back against it rather than letting it happen. You can also observe your own behavior and see what kind of results you're getting. If If the descent is occurring all the way, then you should be becoming more grounded, more sensitized, more open. If instead you're doing, you know, what Greg Henriquez and John Brubakey call reciprocal narrowing, if things are getting narrower and tighter and you're becoming more uh, spastic and more reactive uh, and more dysfunctional, then you're not really letting it happen. So you can look for inner indicators or you can look for outer indicators. You could also look for interpersonal indicators, right? If there are people you love and trust and who know you well, they should be able to give you some feedback about whether it seems like you are um, resisting the descent or enabling the descent. But generally speaking, you need a regular practice of opening those centers all the time and opening all of your functions in order to be safe. Uh, Because if you don't have any regular practice and you're just a regular person running into something like this, there's a good chance you're gonna get it wrong. That's one of the reasons you do sort of um, energy and center type yogic work is so that you have a built-in capacity to open these flows through yourself and to know what they're like so that when something comes up, you're sort of forewarned and forearmed. Yeah,
0: I was thinking about in the mythopoetics of Tantra, you have Milarepa and he was a serial killer, um, you know, he, he, who practiced black magic and you know, did all kinds of bad shit. Like he was the worst kind of person ever. And I, what I like about these old stories is, is, there's a transformation. Any kind of transformation is is, is possible. Um, even even that. And actually, the the, the if you, if they have something called that notion of cities, which are powers, and and cities are powers which transform pe- people. You know, for the good, right? Um, they're not like like black magic negative powers where you're putting a spell on somebody. But he was a kind of a magician, and so he he turned his black magic into city into power, um, and he became one of the more you know you know one of the most revered sort of tantric yogis in, in Tibet. Um, but I like but but I I always liked the fact that the the in that, in that mythologies the guys who were who were the heroes of that story were always the worst people or the the most fucked up people or, or the most, and at least the most, the powerful yogic ones were the ones who are just sort of ordinary, you know, were, were, were good, good, you know, good people, but they, they didn't have these cities, these powers.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful um, way of mythopoetically arranging it. Uh, to help us understand how much transformation is possible and how much the enfolding of darkness and negative affect might be a factor that adds profundity to the journey. Uh, When I think about that transformation from the the serial killer black sorcerer's capacities to the dharmically enabled cities, uh, a lot of that seems to have to do with contraction, right? When you're Trying to control those things too much, you're not letting it flow through and start and stop naturally, then it's going to be distorted, it's going to be egoic, and that move is like that clenched anus, or it's like that refusal of the heart to go all the way down, right? That so there's a basic structure of um decontracting. That has to enable these things to flow through. And as they flow through more freely, then they can spontaneously reorganize themselves into more coherent forms that are more in line with spirituality. So, again, that um, the fundamental dualist distinction between. Controlled and uncontrolled, or between contracted and released, that has to be undermined in a non dualism so that we're free to spontaneously be partially or alternatingly contracted and uncontracted. That affords us a different use of our energies, whether they're just the normal human energies or some kind of mythopoetic powers.
3: Uh, I, I need to say that is a poetry when you're speaking about this. I, I was thinking about this tragedy that happened in the US and and this is, this this problem that we have that we we have reduced all the risk in in society. So we have flattened all, all, all the uh, divergence of, of uh, problem that we have. In in, in, in in the society so we are not ready for sudden movements in, in in our lives if you if you compare with the 18th century it was normal that people died around you but we are not accustomed to that anymore so that so we <laughs> we are not accustomed to to changes in, in that dramatically uh, so we need a more stoic way and uh, to to embrace life, that there can be problems, but we are not ready for it. So in that sense, we need, yeah. need to practice more Tantra to understand that we, we can uh, expose ourselves to risk, but we need to do it in a, in a controlled way. But you put it so much more elegant. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you. And I think we need that more than ever, because the period we're going into is going to be full of very strange, dark, unstable things that people are going to have to face. And if we have the anti-fragility, if we have the tantric disposition, uh, then we might be able to work with those things. But if we don't, and if we're fragile, then the strangeness and the destabilizations that are inevitable at this point will affect people like a trauma and cause them to do all kinds of terrible things to each other. And I think one of the good
0: things that we've been talking about in our, in, in our, in our groups is, is, is the, the need to confront death you know, all the time. Uh, the tantric uh, deity has a skull cup in his right hand, and not in his left hand, and it's full of nectar, you know? Um, so there's always this meditation on death, um, and, and that contains the, the, the elixir of life, actually. Uh, like the two are, are, are never separate. So I think that's fundamental in Sutra and Tantra, uh, but but uh, but is to be able to you know walk walk among you know the corpses and and uh, experience the horrors and the beauty like the the that that the horror and the beauty simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I think that's as true for our collective encounter with the way the world is now as it is for our individual encounter with ourselves and our own mortality. Right. If we want to be capable of either navigating the world in a better direction or of surviving and thriving under apocalypse like conditions, we have to take seriously the doom. Right. We can't say, well, we're just going to escape or we don't have to think about it or maybe the technology will help or or how are we going to prevent the apocalypse? You have to let yourself feel that the apocalypse is going to happen. Right. Just like you are going to die. There's a collective transformation that is dark and death-like, and we're not going to be able to escape it. And once you allow that to go through and continually allow that to go through, then you are in a position to be able to creatively start to work with the circumstance to try to make things better, more interesting, more stable, more healthy going forward. But for people who won't allow themselves to feel that the doom is inevitable, They're not really in a grounded, authentic position to try to do anything that will help. And their attempts to help will be undermined by what they refuse to accept. Right. So some of the criticisms of the mood you get around Game B, it's not a criticism of the fact that people are trying to make better systems. We need them to be working hard on that. But if they're not accepting the doom and the darkness, then their attempts will be undermined by the very things they're trying to solve.
4: If it feels like we need a like a cultural psychoanalysis because we're not willing to look at the like when to use the shootings as an example, again, it's like we every time this happens, we talk about guns. And it's just like it's not these aren't happening because of guns. Like that is that is how they're being borne out, but it's not like the root of this problem. And we're we're stuck in this way of you're right, like we're not addressing the The doom uh, that is occurring, and like why there are people who are going into this this dark place, um we just politicize it as a gun issue and and lobbyists run around and do their thing, and nothing changes.
1: yeah, I appreciate your pointing out socioanalysis there a lot, I think. and Soderquist have done a good job in trying to present some of that need for a a social version of psychoanalysis, as have people like Žižek over the years. And there's obviously some kind of limitation in our collective action and that limitation is uh, largely held in place by the intensities of experience that we're collectively unwilling to face.
2: Well, it's like a bizarre point in in history where for For various reasons, we actually haven't had to see the darkest aspects of our collective behavior. We haven't really had to go to war, those of us in the West, for several generations. Um, And we've had outlets for those warlike energies and things like football games. But that drum can start beating. And like when we see something like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I guess it's like, oh, shit, that can happen. Well, yes, that can happen. And you go back three generations, like that happened to all of our great grandfathers, I guess. Well,
1: one of the things that uh, is applicable to Tantra and especially applicable to uh, men standing together in front of Tantra is the question of how aggression is integrated and sacralized in our experience. Because a lot of the spiritual traditions and a lot of our social protocols now don't give us any experience or any training in how to handle aggression, how to use it. As a result, we get people with sort of toxic or poisoned outbursts of aggression, or we get a whole bunch of people who think that they just aren't aggressive, and that, but for some reason they're flocking around, attacking the people they think are aggressive. So we have this uh, real lack of wisdom around, how do you handle, how do you get smarter about aggression? How do you use it? What's it supposed to do for us? And without training of that kind, which sometimes comes with war, but on the other hand, you can have people go to war with no real skill or wisdom or confrontation with death and the other. So we need to develop something like a, a dharma of that. You know, Evola had this phrase around the metaphysics of war. Uh, and although a lot of his ideas might not be what we want to take on board, there is an important element to war and aggression there's an energy there that we all have in our bodies that men usually stand for symbolically that we need to venerate and integrate and treat as a creative area for sacred exploration. Otherwise, we're gonna get a constant inchoate, chaotic return of aggression at all levels that we aren't prepared for. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember listening to a a, a Tibetan teacher talking to a bunch of monks and he said, I know you're monks and you don't want to hear about this, but we're going to talk about, you know, fucking and killing now, (laughs) you know, because, because, because those energies are, we have to have to be something, we have to do something with those. We we can't just, you know, we can't meditate them away even and, and, uh, uh, and, and the repression of them does create school shootings probably, right? Probably the, the whole culture of the American suburbs, right, which tries to be so clean and safe and nice, turns into a, you know, a horror. Um, because for, for the reasons that you, you, you were talking about, uh, Layman, I think.
1: Well, there's a beautiful book, Zen at War, that details what the Zen monasteries yeah, did during the Second book. World War in Japan. Right. And some of them didn't, but a lot of them did simply mobilize to be part of the fascist war effort uh, and kind of recalculated the meaning of Zen to serve the army. Some of that's pragmatic. Maybe you can't escape it. But there is a lot of uh, skill development that was not going on in those monasteries that might have prepared them in order to handle that circumstance, in order not to just be sucked into uh, an aggressive a destructive, almost demonic mass event of aggression that was going on that they weren't prepared for, that their individual practice was not touching some aspects of their being, and as a result they didn't have skill or capacity in those areas. Yeah. Right,
0: everybody, feel free to, to just jump in here, eh? and ask some questions if, if something is. People have like
2: about Anis. Oh. you go.
3: Okay, I would like to go back to this uh, tantric disposition and tantra in society that you touched about a little bit, um, having these different circles of uh, tantra, sutra, and profane, the selection uh, part. Uh, How can tantra go to this, uh, create the social conditions to push more people uh, into this direction? Can you say something about it?
1: I think we need to... uh obviously generate new kinds of religious institutions in which something like Tantra can flourish under the current conditions, right? And they need to be scientifically informed. They need to be therapeutically informed. Um, they need to be uh, circumscribed experimental zones for us to regenerate Tantra. Uh, and when we do that, we'll, there'll be a lot of things we won't know until we start doing that, right? Until we can start to set up some actual sacred events or some sort of Synthios swarm deity events, um, then we'll start to see some of the knowledge that we need in order to arrange the divisions of a society going forward. I think in general, we know that we need to have a fairly open, fairly secure, fairly robust, anti-fragile, multidimensional society uh, in order to allow people the greatest opportunity to be capable of and interested in tantric pursuits. Uh, Then we need to be thinking about what are the basic kinds of um, predisposing educational experiences um, that would allow them to be ready for that, right? We might even think about replacing, you know, this is totally hypothetical speculative scenarios, but uh, there's no reason the education system shouldn't be conceived of as the sutra, right? As the precondition to tantric practice doesn't mean everyone's going to get there, but what are the basic skills, the basic pre-skills or proto-skills we would want people to have so that they are capable of Tantra? And how do we make those be part of the basic curriculum? And if the institutions are providing that, then we need to set up some alternative uh, educational networks and rethink the way we're raising children so that we can provide them with the underlying skills so that at some point they become capable of it. I often tell this story about taking one of my goddaughters to swimming lessons when she was very young, and they determined she was too small for the swimming lessons. So what they did was they put her in a special class where they practiced the parts of swimming, right? They would hold their head underwater, and they would, you know, have 10 minutes of moving their arms, and they would do this every day for a couple of weeks so that next year when they came back, they had all the parts to do swimming practice if they wanted to. So we could think of the sutric dimension of general education and general child raising as an attempt to distribute the skills that would be needed later if tantra is going to be possible for people
0: yeah i'd almost add to that layman that there's preliminaries as you say before you enter tantra and pre-preliminaries and you know using the traditional language but sometimes the preliminaries are actually the whole practice and they are tantra in itself so it's it's not it's not exactly linear In that sense, like that's true that it's true that you have to have the stages, but on the other, at the same time, the stages are not linear, they're sort of organic and, and you find yourself wherever you are on that. But there has to be a whole spectrum of of practices, which 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 line up to who you are, at that particular moment.
1: No, Greg Kaminsky's book on the pre practices is very important in this regard. Right. Because I think what you get is an initial set it's like a fractal reiteration everything's present in the initial iteration exactly that's what i was getting until it keeps iterating right so you go up to the next level the next level is another more complicated way to practice those proto skills and so on and so on and after you've gone through many of those iterations the underlying skills that you thought were just the beginning they start to shine forth as essential to the entire system
0: yes and also the uh, you can do it go through it backwards like you start with the ultimate practice of emptiness or zochin or something like that and then if you can't do that then you then you do other practices and if you can't do that you do other practices until you're you're always going backwards actually you're not just going forwards through through a, in, in an assembly line manner you're going you're going backwards and you're revisiting each stage so you're going back to sutra right and you're going back you know as you're advancing forward towards Tantra so so you're kind of it's like the zen arrow that points in both directions
1: yeah oh, and so it's really important to collectively start to think about what these underlying practices are that you can find in seemingly simple or seemingly ultimate versions of the practice. We were, I was just leading the Meta-Modern Spirituality Retreat in Vermont. And one of the discussions there was around, how do we, from a so-called Meta-Modern perspective, retro-engineer the spiritual practices of the past and also afford ourselves the opportunity to improvise new practices for changing world conditions. And in order to hmm. do that, you've basically got to figure out what are the key underlying skills that generate any of these practices, that make any of them workable. We often think about a practice, but usually a practice consists of several different hidden skills that you need in order to pull that practice off. And having a general sense of what those underlying skills are, I think, is going to give us—it's going to afford us the possibility of generating spirituality going forward. And if we don't do it, then we probably won't be able to generate that.
3: I think that's a really interesting because then you have find. The, the the thinking the way and the process of, of tantra and, and and you are not dogmatic about uh, what what the previous preliminary narrative has been written for for defining what tantra is you're finding the keys point of it and and translate it to our uh, comp, uh, our society today uh, and what 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 do we need to to embrace the idea instead of actually taking Exactly. This is the list of being uh, uh, that you need to do before you go to Chantra. That's, that's the old context. We need to put it in, in a new context. Is, is that- the, the That's thing true, but that, we don't yeah. want to lose the old context
1: either, right? Uh, for a lot of people going through the old context in a fairly rigorous way might be essential to them learning to embody those skills. Uh, but we do need to unpack what those underlying skills are so that we can recognize the analogs to tantra from all the cultures and so that we can generate new tantra-like phenomenon going forward. So we want a very big picture. We want to be able to put those things together in new combinations. But we also need to um, be very open to relying on the wisdom of our ancestors who were able to pull this off successfully. And I would add teachers, right? Because you know, in my experience
0: with working with teachers, is okay. One teacher might ask uh, a teacher might ask one student to do the very traditional practices, uh, full on, and then he might ask another student to go have a lot of sex, or he might ask another student to to learn to play the the you know the Cuban Cuban percussion uh, or or something like that. It depends on what is needed. Like a really good teacher knows. Knows what you need, and so so there has to be a context that's organic and not a, a, again a, a mechanical assembly line kind of process. Um, that's what that's what I see.
1: Yeah, I think when you have a good teacher, uh, now they aren't always good.
0: No, they're not always. But good, a good
1: yeah. teacher should be able to understand not only have some kind of spiritual attainment in themselves. But also have a reasonably good understanding of the diversity of human psychology and a good way of being in relationship and a good way of intuiting what might be needed. But even then, there's still a huge amount of responsibility on the students part. So one of the things we need to evolve going forward or regenerate is a kind of wisdom about how to have student teacher relationships in a way that it's productive and safe, but also challenging. Yeah, not not synchophantic
0: or mimetic. Um, but also, also, also reverent, I think.
1: Yeah. And that is true also of elders as well, right? There are many forms of reverence in our society that we've lost track of.
3: My interpretation of this is that I, I can't cherry-pick from the old traditions myself. I, I need some, some teacher that can translate the context of the old ways to the new ways in our context in our contemporary society. And, and that's I think it's really hard because you need to find this authentic person that really understands the old ways to, to be able to translate it to the new ways. And and I'm constantly... Are, Annoyed of its that tantra mis, misunderstand as this kind of sexual practices, it's so much more. And so, and, and that's that's my, all my almost always my disbelief in, in these teachers that they're always talking about uh, sex. And, and I think it's, it's I'm I think it's bad that it's only narrowed to that thing. It
1: tells us something about our culture. Right. If Tantra wants to come and say, look, all of the basic uh, energies, all the relational polarized energies of being are a context for our spirituality and our development. And you have a civilization that immediately goes, oh, you mean sex. <laughs> it suggests that that civilization is not handling sex very well. <laughs>
3: yeah, that's true.
0: So this gets us to maybe the last question is, is is. Which I brought up at the beginning, you were going to tell us all about your sex life. Oh, wait a minute.
1: Is there anything you'd specifically like to know, Ed? I like
0: <laughs> actually, I was listening to your conversation with Greg, and you've shared this publicly a little bit uh, about that being a, a, a practice in your in your life. And um, um so I'm not uh, I'm not I think I don't think I'm trespassing or or anything, but I was listening check out uh uh, uh, layman's conversation with greg henrique's where greg does a a sort of thorough analysis of your personality which i think was was a great episode um but uh but but yeah so let's ask this as a serious question i'm joking but but how how is the sexual practice for you and, and what does that do for you and 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 how do you do it and you know i mean you don't have to get into the details, but
1: Uh, what we've found is making it a regular, mostly daily practice affords us a lot of interesting opportunities. uh, Because there are ways you can come up with to do uh, sexual practice as a tantric vehicle. Um, But that's very often, let's say too narrow or too driven by subconscious insufficiency needs in terms of right if you're say having sex once a month that's very different than once a week or fairly daily in terms of how much freedom you have from the drive if the drive feels desperate or unsatisfied then it's very easy to sort of lock it down it's going to have to be this in order to meet a lot of my parameters if it's more frequent and more intentional and more talked about as a sacred thing, that provides you with an experimental theater to try it a whole bunch of different ways. So that's what I've mostly noticed. Is the main thing is to create a kind of um, multi-directional sexual temple where you have a lot more opportunity to explore and experiment than you might otherwise do. As long as you're just responding to, oh, now is the opportunity, or I have this drive, you're not really gonna unpack the the seeming singularity of sexuality into a whole bunch of subdivisions of sexuality that can be explored in different ways. Because there are a very large number of ways to bring consciousness and energy and awareness and reciprocity and visualization and somatic sensing all these things can be woven in in quite a number of different ways. And it may not be the case that for any given person there's one particular type of practice we want it to be i want it to be much more organic i want it to be swaying through all of these different forms and i want to be learning a spontaneous sense of internal prompting as to what's the appropriate relationship to those energies as they unfold in a given moment uh, and you can't really do that unless you are, are sampling a whole bunch of different styles i don't know if that answers your question
0: no that's very good That's uh, very good uh, I, and i like the I like the the multi-dimensional temple image. Uh, uh, that's very good. Um, so maybe this is usually the time where we where we move from our formal, let's say, event, which is an hour and a half, and then we usually go into this thing um, where we where we just have a drink and, and have have informal uh, conversation. So so right now, I guess I I would like this would be the end of the recording, and I'd like to really thank layman for a fantastic uh, conversation. I'm really happy that we talked about Tantra and and that 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 was the subject that came out. Um, And I think, you know, people, I think this, this is a a juicy subject, obviously. Um, So thanks, thanks so much for for being here. And uh, if you want to stick around, and if people want to go have a drink and come back in five minutes after a pee and just have a have an informal conversation, uh, we'll do that now.